um, I mean, I know that, you know, you've known both of us our whole lives, but you've probably never known Nick to be so blasé about something. Um, but yes, that's kind of his thing. Um, so just to get that elephant out of the room. Um, Should I take my pants off? I mean... I don't want Nick to feel uncomfortable. This is about your comfort levels, not his. And this is what I keep trying to tell Nick every week when people come in. I mean, Damien Walsh Howling took his pants off. Um, we didn't really talk to Molly about what was going to happen, but it never really came up. So I didn't really go there with him. Um, but like Sam just kind of sat there and was a little bit disgusted. Damo took his pants off. Michaela was a bit uncomfortable. So it's really, it's, it's up to you, man. It's whatever you feel comfortable doing. I'll take my shoes off. Yeah. Hey, coming up next, people, and welcome to this week's Ramble. Don't really have much to say at the head here. This is the second uh, little step away from the uh, the entertainment industry, so I really hope that you enjoy this. Uh, please share and like on your social media friends, and if you feel like it, give us a review on uh, on iTunes. It's all really appreciated, and it all helps to create awareness so that I can keep bringing you more episodes of coming up next. And please, friends, feel free to share your thoughts, any wisdom or, uh, or feedback you might have on the show. And this week's guest is someone who has known me my entire life, and I've known him my entire life. He's a bit older than me, so I can't say that I've known him his entire life because, well, you get it. He's an architect who has uh, designed a life by his own rules, if I can be so punny. But anyway, without further terrible jokes, this week's guest, Warwick Mahaley. So you're, uh, you're actually our second uh, divergence, I guess, outside of the entertainment industry. Uh, you know, I'm really deeply fascinated by why people do what they do and we're in a unique situation where we've watched each other make choices that have led us to where we are now uh and you know you have gone down this creative path of architecture and i don't really think a lot of people myself included really have an understanding about what that is on a philosophical level and i think you know post gfc you know everyone always talks about oh the entertainment industry is so hard to make a dent in you know it must be so hard to be a filmmaker so hard to be an actor so hard to be any of these um professions that have had this stigma attached to them for ages but post gfc my understanding is pretty fucking hard to be anything um so i guess also in that we've had similar upbringings it's really cool to be able to chat to you about your beliefs and what you think um has led you to this point you know you've got a, a beautiful family uh, you're in business um, you've really set your mind to a life that you want to have and you've created that and it may be you know there's always going to be next step next step next step or you know goals being reinvented and recreated um, but you know there's a lot of admiration for someone finding that stability for themselves and in themselves and I'm sure there's plenty of lessons that can be taken from that Yes. You'd think architecture was is a stable profession. And I guess as a profession, 
there probably is a little bit of that. Um, but one of the things that no one tells you when you go into business is that um, the the big difference between, or one of the big differences between being employed is, is when your job goes into hibernation for one of the millions of reasons that architecture projects go into hibernation, your boss just fills your time with something else. But when you are the boss, your project goes into into hibernation, then you have no work to do, which means no money is coming in. So an architecture is a really long, long game, really long. And I have such uh, envy for musicians in particular, um, particularly pantsless musicians, <laughs> because there's instant feedback. Mm. You know, when you're practicing your art, you get told instantly whether or not it's right or not. And yeah, you can work on it and it becomes a longer, you know, a particular piece that you might be working on might be a longer project that develops, but there's that constant feedback process. But within architecture, you don't know whether or not an idea has worked for at least two to three years. And so it takes forever. Anyway, that's a bit of a segue back to the idea of stability because these projects take so long, um, they often have big pauses. And when they pause, you have to, you know, be able to deal with that, I guess. Mm. And how do you deal with that? I mean, it must be frustrating on one level um, to have an idea that can't be fully realized because the power's in someone else's hands. Yeah. So, yeah, so there is definitely a, in any design pursuit, there is a strong sense of artistic uh, uh, creation. And um, one of the things about architecture is, is that with with some notable exceptions, architecture is generally always commissioned rather than you sitting down and saying, right, I'm going to create a song or I'm going to paint a painting or I'm going to sculpt something for myself and then find an audience for that later. The audience comes first. So the power's always in somebody else's hands um, and or almost always in somebody else's hands. There are strategies to deal with it. One of the strategies is you have more than one project. And so if you have multiple projects that you can try and stagger and you deliberately try and push one ahead of the other, even if they've come in at the same time so that you can deal with one project in the other project's downtime. But even then, despite our best planning um, regularly, probably three times a year, two or three times a year, we would get every single one of our projects all going to hibernation simultaneously. Hmm. That scares the shit out of my wife, Erica, who's also part of our practice and who's also an architect. Um, I'm a bit more philosophical about it because I think I can, I think I'm more comfortable with a longer trajectory than Erica is. Um, and we, you believe in architecture, karma, architecture, karma. Nice. Yes. I do believe in architecture, karma. In the building industry, they call it swings and roundabouts. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, Especially when you're commissioned to design a park. That would be punny if that were the case. When I do get, when we do one day get commissioned to design a park, we'll make sure we use that phrase regularly on site. <laughs> Does anyone um, know about the swings and roundabouts? <laughs> uh, yes. Do you have to give way in a roundabout at a, in a park? Yeah, of course you do. You've got to wait your turn. Yeah. Fair enough. Everyone knows that. Uh, so let's take a little step backwards. 
um, if I may. Um, well, you were in the middle of saying something and I interrupted you. You're talking about... Um, I segued myself too much. That's I okay. Lost the I mean, I this whole—I mean, you've listened to this show. It's just a fucking massive tangent. <laughs> Com- I'm comfortable with the tangent. That's fine. Yeah, cool. Uh, so I'll just cut the, that little bit out. I probably won't because it's fun having it in a raw format and <laughs> letting people see my weird thought process. Uh, we both went to private schools, grew up. You know, we never wanted for anything. Um, I guess in a, in a in a literal sense, I mean, as a kid, you always want stuff. Um, but how do you think that has contributed to us being able to pursue creative endeavors? Or I don't know, you don't need to speak for me, but how does that? How do you feel that support and that um, that environment has allowed you to flourish as a creative person and to make your own choices? I'm sensing this is a common interest for you. I was listening to Samuel Johnson's interview mm. and uh, the same topic came up and I was intrigued by it and thinking about it myself. Um, have you heard that Tim Minchin song where he talks about um, uh, really wishing that he'd had a uh, arduous upbringing no. so that he could be a proper rocker, right. but instead he had like a really safe, nourishing upbringing and he just learned how to play piano instead, which isn't really good when you're growing up in the like the 80s and the 90s because which rock bands have a piano in them yeah yeah um i will go and look it up yeah it's bloody funny um look i think that creativity is a um a process of projecting yourself out into some future environment whatever that environment is creating something it's never you're not creating i'm not saying you're creating something from nothing creating something from whatever's there in yourself and around in the world around you and reformulating it in a way that's new and i think if you have to do that you need to be i think certainly within the design fields more so than perhaps art you need to be confident about where you're starting um and i reckon having a really strong foundation in your upbringing is really important. And we've, I feel weird about um, investigating high schools at the moment for my three-year-old son and six-month-old daughter. Mm. But that's what we're doing because apparently that's what parents do these days. (laughs) Um, You got to get in early. And I was reflecting on that question about um, making a choice. Let's say we we send our children to private schools. And, you know, all private schools basically offer similar curriculums, or curricula, sorry. And, uh, and certainly one of the schools that we went and saw really felt very similar to what I would imagine to be like what most high schools are like. And it was kind of disappointing seeing that they didn't really have a strong agenda. They were just teaching maths and English and a couple of languages and sciences and, you know, kids just get on with learning and playing footy on the weekends. And that's basically what their role is. Mm. Fairly cookie cutter. Yeah, really cookie cutter. And other schools have been much more agenda driven, which we've really enjoyed. Um, And so I've been reflecting, how does that lack of an agenda or presence of an agenda translate into 12 years of education? If you, well, six years of high school or how many years of education and how does it, it's the same question about your upbringing with your parents. Mm -hmm. How does every conversation or every moment 
how does one any one of those things you cut it out it's not going to make a lick of difference but it's obviously the aggregate of a million of such, of those interactions that mm-hmm. somehow build you into the person you're going to be um and in choosing the schools that we want to send our kids to that's become really forefront in a in certainly in my mind about how is this going to shape our child can a high school shape a child how is my interest in architecture and interest in the built and passion for the built environment? Was that shaped by my high school somehow? Was it shaped by my primary school? I was trying to think, what do I remember about my primary school years in, in, in terms of the minutia, that stuff that was that those build up of moments. I don't remember any of them mm. or many of them. I might remember a handful of thousands yet somehow they've shaped me into the person I am. And I, I think that's a really, I reckon that's a really tough question. <laughs> well, what do you think? Um, of course it has, of course it's shaped who I am. Um, uh, I look back on certain moments in my, um, my teenage years and I tried very hard not to become an architect. Um, not because I didn't want to become an architect, but, um, there were a series of decisions that I made that took me down very different paths that I eventually abandoned and returned to architecture. And I say returned because I think one of my earliest memories, it, as about a five-year-old was that I wanted to be an architect when I grew up. It was something that was always part of me. Wow. And then in my high school years, um, I think I got subsumed by the the race for what is now called the ATA, or used to be called the TER, i.e. your high school score to get into the best university yeah, program you I could possibly. I didn't know they changed that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what ATAR stands for. Australian tertiary something rank. It was called an enter score when I was there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, getting that luscious 90 something plus score out of a hundred was the whole goal. And to do that, it meant you needed to do a sciences based course and you needed to do languages and, you know, pick scores based on the ones that got scaled in the right way. And it felt like it was this massive rat race. And so Mm. I did all that stuff. I I did a language that I don't, I no longer remember. And I did all these hard sciences and I did a year of pharmacy college out of high school, um, because I wanted to be a doctor. Mm. I would make a fucking shithouse doctor. <laughs> um, I Good don't surgeon. like blood. I, um, I'm squeamish about that sort of things. Mm. And the rote learning that I had to do was just of no interest to me. Mm. I had no excitement about it. And whenever we had to do rote learn- learning, when I finally did architecture studies, also wasn't the most interesting part of my education. So I don't know how that happened in my head, how I suddenly went from... I went down that stream. Mm. This is a thing that, you know, the schools that we went to and the, I guess, environments and circles that we grew up in really pushed uh, financially secure occupation and uh, life path over um, one that's going to fulfill you on a, um, you know, a soulful level. And I think it's, you know, very easy to get swept up. There's, I'm sure there's plenty of people I went to school with who did the same thing and um, went in one direction only to maybe some of them have come back now. Maybe some of them will never come back. Maybe some will come back when they hit their midlife and go, fuck me, I'm, I've just just been doing the bare minimum. And that may be making a lot of money, but it's not really fulfilling uh, in a soulful level. So, I think university erroneously is now seen as a vocational stepping stone right so 
in other words, I need to go to university so I can get a better job. Mm. A better job means a higher paying job. Um, and you look at the most popular um, outcomes of that at the moment, you know, people going into things like banking and finance and, and law and um, architecture is terribly paying. In, in t- and in fact, there are all these studies that show that architecture is one of the worst courses to do in terms of the investment you put into it, both in the number of years you have to study and the number of hours you have to work once you get out into the workforce and your remuneration. Really poor mm. life decision for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm proud of that or I'm like sick of that. Probably I'm a bit of sick, a bit sick of that. I like to change that. But um, I, I think, and I don't think that used to exist. I reckon in our parents' generation, it was okay to go to university and do an arts course. Like that was seen as a, a legitimate trajectory to go and become all sorts of different things. Academic and it, or... And it wasn't about becoming an academic or about becoming a historian or a philosopher or a teacher. It was about studying an arts program and mm. getting a humanities education. That was the whole deal. Mm-hmm. But now if some kid gets like an, you know, the top score in the, in the state and they went and did arts... Everyone would tell them they were absolutely stupid and wasting their chances. Yeah, turn their nose up. And And they say, you should do an arts law course. Mm. Sure, keep your arts. You know, do that sort of fun, you know, (laughs) good for nothing philosophy. But, you know, you've got to get a job out of the end of this. So Mm. don't waste your opportunities. Um, I think it's a bit of, it's a bit of, I'm a bit sad about that. That's the way it exists these days. Mm. Yeah, I feel like on one level I agree with you and on another level I feel as though there's people now more so than ever following their creative passions and looking at that as a realistic career opportunity. Um, I was reading something on your blog about the that since the GFC, you know, there's been more architecture students ever than ever graduating from architecture but less jobs than it. it's an ever decreasing job market. And I'm not sure if it's the same for film students in the sense that I don't know if there's ever been a significant amount of work for filmmakers. But when I went to Swinburne, for example, and studied film and TV there, which was 10 years ago now that I started, um, there were 30-ish people in my year. And um, so I graduated in... 2007 and then I hear that the next year after I graduated they're starting to take in 100 people in a year and it's like where the fuck is the work for all these people I mean they're not all going to become directors most a lot of them may not even pursue careers in the entertainment or film industry but it seems like this that it's becoming a realistic career path for people where previously it was just people who were very passionate about it would pursue it and everyone else kind of looked at it as like well that's not a real job you want a real job you go and pick up a book and study law yeah um i think there are certain tertiary educations and i think architecture is one of the best of these that whose primary job even though people use it as a vocational exercise his primary job is to actually teach a an invaluable worldview. Mm. And I know that I the reason I was interested in architecture um, after my failed year at um, studying pharmacy and the reason I'm now an architect are very, very different. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I could articulate um, what those two reasons are, but I know that... You know that question's coming. Yeah, we'll get to it. 
Um, but the the course that I undertook at Melbourne University shaped me in a very profound way. And I'm without doubt right now absolutely convinced about the importance of the built environment in a way that there was no way I was like that when I was 18. Um, and that was something that the, um, that the the university education taught me. And so I think on the question of, you know, lots of kids graduating from architecture schools and there not being that many jobs is there are lots of kids who graduate from architecture schools who don't become architects. And in some ways that's seen as a problem because a lot of the kids who don't become architects tend to be female. And there's actually a lot of work being done within their profession at the moment to address, um, uh, you know, centuries basically of gender imbalance, um, lots of really good work. But the other, the other part of it is, is that um, I think the sort of education you get from a creative um, tertiary course is, I don't know how people survive without it. I don't know how people um, get out into the world to go and become, you know, like serious business people of various kinds and don't know how to either draw or sing or play an instrument or paint or anything that's creative, even just the sort of the, the way you need to set your brain in that right brain mode to go and see the world in a different way. And I've been reading this amazing book at the moment by Ed Catmull, the um, president of Pixar. Oh, yeah. Um, and he talks about um, some of the Pixar University courses they run for their staff. And one of the really key ones is life drawing. Um, mm. and, the, and, it's, and he says, you know, you, you might get a director sitting down doing a life drawing class next to a, an assistant, 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 sound person next to a tech person next to a producer and you know it's a very flattening exercise in terms of the hierarchies but also the whole point is is that um his comment was is that there is this misunderstanding that taking drawing classes teaches you how to draw his comment he's, he thinks that taking drawing classes teaches you how to see mm. and i think that's what creative and arts-based um educations give you they they teach you a new way of seeing the world and reprioritizing things so for instance understanding that money is not the most important thing and that there are much more important things that can um, that exist and that can be pursued. And I think architecture is amazing at that. And I'm sure, f and it'd be interesting to know whether or not those hundred kids who are graduating from film school go on become filmmakers of various kinds, or whether or not they go out into other careers and then always carry that um, that Philosophy. idea of philo the philosoph philosophies of creativity and the importance of storytelling into other lives. Because I reckon that would be just as invaluable as the creative sort of design type industries as well. Mm. So I want to come back to that point because I'm quite interested, but I want to know, first of all, what was it when you were five years old that really struck you about architecture? I remember you used to do a, a shitload of drawings and um, that I, I remember Nick and I always asking you to draw. Spawn was something that you drew a lot. And those characters, comic book characters, yeah, yeah, comic book characters. I mean, there's obviously something that was deeply connected for you in that expression, um, and perhaps still is today. I mean, I remember when we were making Shotgun, and you did those comic book covers mm. for us um, that I still have. Uh, so I guess, yeah, what what. Do you remember what it was about architecture when you were five that really was something that you connected to? 
I can remember as a kid at various ages, um, I think it was just, it was a thing for me. It was a way of, um, I'm sure it was a, an example of self-expression. Um, and I've heard it said that uh, everyone knows how to draw. Um, Nick's shaking his head at the moment. Nick reckons he doesn't know how to draw. But you look at any five-year-old kid and what do they just spend a lot of their time doing? They're drawing, you know, like they're painting. And like, it doesn't matter that you know, they're not um, the Mona Lisa. Mm. Um, they're, they're using the drawn form or the painted form as a, as a method of expression. And then I think, and then as adults, you lose that. You, you suppress that somehow by telling yourself that you can't draw. But one of the greatest architects in the history of modernism, Le Corbusier, a Swiss architect who um, spent most of his life most of his life in France um, was really not a very good drawer, but he drew constantly. And I'm, I have a book, in fact, just of his sketches. Mm. Uh, and you look at a lot of the drawings and they've got nothing on some of the great drawing architects of history in terms of the people who can, you know, really put together an artwork, but as a way of communicating an idea, he just did it all the time. Um, and, I think for me, drawing, I remember when I was a kid, I used to draw like all sorts of things. And, and in my teenage years, I was infatuated with like superheroes and comic books. And I still am. Um, and I would draw that a lot. And I remember going away on holidays and um, you'd, we'd go to a, like a resort or a village of some kind down on the coast um, and on the Mornington Peninsula. And I would design um, resorts. Wow. Like, I, I don't know where those drawings are. I don't know if they're any good or not, but it was just something I loved doing. I loved this, I don't know, I loved the exercise of it. And, um, you know, you'd all be sitting around the pool and some people would be reading a book and I'd be sitting there sketching. Mm. And what was the feedback that you got about that or from that? I think I always associated myself, or always in terms of my own self-awareness, I always thought of myself as a good drawer. Um, it was one of the things that defined me, um, certainly in my schooling years. Um, and I'm sure, therefore, I took a lot of pride in it. Mm. And you felt like, um, obviously, parents were very supportive of that. You felt like you got some sort of, uh, I guess, validation from or significance from being able to have that skill and have that tool and being able to um, not be like on the straight and narrow and when everyone's sitting around reading a book or enjoying the pool, you're constructing a resort. Oh, look, it was all, I remember it being really positive and I remember um, family friends growing up with them um, asking me to teach them how to draw, which I always found quite challenging because I had no idea how you just did it i just did it and i think the real answer is we well, just got to start drawing and keep on drawing all the time mm. um good and, and bad is just are just relative terms aren't they yeah and if you like anything you practice it and you get better at it i mean that's the rule of the life so there was no secret to the success mm. um and you know the journey itself was the most important part of actually just drawing and drawing and drawing over and over again um i, I yeah, so I was going to say, I heard a, uh, a great quote from the comedian Sinbad. He was talking about his dad 
and some advice that he gave him. And I think the advice was something along the lines of, you can have no talent as long as you are prepared to be the hardest working motherfucker in that room. <laughs> yeah, well, look, um, there are plenty of sporting heroes who never consider themselves to be the most talented people in the room, but just through sheer effort, like Leighton Hewitt, for, as a great example, you know, has never, no one has ever confused him with, um, uh, with having the, the sheer style and prowess of, of Roger Federer. But that guy was number one for ages. He was bloody good. Um, and um, it was because he had such determination. Mm. Um, there's a, one of my, one of the architects who I uh, absolutely look up to. I, I think calling him a mentor is, is too much because I haven't had a huge amount of contact with him. I studied a masterclass with him some years ago and he's based in, um, in Sydney or just outside of Sydney. A guy called Richard Laplastria. He's like... He's like the Crocodile Dundee of architects. <laughs> a guy lives on the pit water, um, right. which is like a, a, a big um, sort of lake. And actually not a lake because it's sort of a, a big water system that feeds off the bay about an hour's north of um, Sydney in a, a house he built himself. Um, he's he, does, he never uses a computer when he designs. He lives in most of the sites that he works on. Like he's, he's a a bush tucker man he's an extraordinary guy and i think in many ways epitomizes what um what it means to be an architect and one of his passions is talking about the origins of words like the greek and latin origins of a lot of the words that we use and to draw he talks about another way we use it is to draw something out of something else like to draw truth out of an object and mm -hmm. so he says that's what you got to do when you draw it's not about depicting something with um photographic accuracy it's about getting to the essence of a thing and extracting that out of whatever it is you're looking at or trying to mm -hmm. you know trying to observe and get down onto the page um, and then communicating that spirit in your drawing and so a lot of his drawings are really simple very very um very sketchy and he comes from a school like a long school of artists and drawers he was one of his mentors was a guy called lloyd rees who was a very famous australian artist important Australian artist and um, you know it might just be a couple of simple strokes that somehow capture the shape and the windswept nature of a, a headland on, on a coastline and that's all you need to understand that the wind and the water is what has shaped that over centuries or over millennia shaped that rock formation into mm. the shape it is and that's the thing he's trying to get at um, I really believe in that I think that's a really important part of um, the expression of drawing I think that's true of any art form all you're trying to do is tell the story of your perceived truth. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that in film and I can see that in, in writing, um, in about, um, in somehow capturing life experience in, in a, like, you're saying it in an iconic way is not what I mean at all, but in an archetypal way, maybe. Saying in, in crude a, terms, I guess. Yeah, like just, getting rid of all the, the white noise and getting down to the essence of what that thing is and then trying to express the emotion or the yeah. the, the experience of it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true of, or should be true. You know, it should always be about the truth of the story or the situation or the um, experience. It should never be about the artist or the um, lit literal uh superficial what's happening or whatever 
one of the things I love about um, film and about comics as well is the way they um, well, it's okay to go and take the one in a million story arc and just and and get rid of the bits that are confusing because they're not really um, working towards it. I remember reading an uh, interview with um, uh, I've forgotten his first name, Kuron, the director of Gravity. Oh, yeah. Um, and how was looking at the scientific accuracy of the film, and he was saying that the the very first they actually wrote an entire film where everything was perfectly one hundred percent scientifically accurate. But as they started to put the film together, they realised that they were spending way too much of the film just explaining why things were the way they were, and it was becoming just so heavy and so bogged down. So in the end, they said, well, if we just go and put everything in the same orbital height, uh, orbital um, um, altitude, then which is not how it works at all, then that's how we can get the you know the chain reaction collision happening and how the whole story comes about. Mm. And by simple getting rid of that scientific accuracy allowed him to tell the story. And I totally respect that decision. Mm-hmm. And in comic books, um, when if you ever see a comic book character running, you never see them running mid stride like with their legs. Like when you look at someone running, 99% of the time, their legs are quite close to each other, except for the bit when they're at full stride and the legs are really far apart. That's like the the 1% of your running stride. Comic book artists always draw characters running at full stride because it characterizes the essence of what's going on. Mm. Like even though you can take you can take a photo of someone running and it looks like they're walking because their their legs their feet are basically right alongside each other but that doesn't communicate the essence of it no. strip out strip that stuff away you want to have someone look like their feet are on opposite sides of the planet mm. like uh, Mad Max Fury Road I don't know if you saw that or not yes but that was storytelling that the most recent one yeah. yeah yeah storytelling in its most simplistic and yet uh, deep form I mean it's you literally just dropped in this world it's a very simple storyline but it has so much social commentary. Well, there's so much depth there to see if you want to see it, and if you just want to see a fucking cool action film, that's there too. I haven't I haven't read anything into that film, but I I walked out of it thinking there has the it has got to um, have a there's a huge homage there to the film Jewel from like this is that from the seventies I think the. Um, it felt like it was a throwback to old exploitation films. Uh, that's not uh, yeah okay um jewel jewel was like one of it was either a spielberg or a james one of their earliest films ever Mm. or scorsese or something one of the big film directors of today um and it's basically the entire film is one long car chase right and so and it's an entire story arc happening within uh it's about a guy who's like i think he's a a door-to-door salesman driving around america and he gets um basically um uh pursued by a dude in a truck mm. and you never see the guy in the truck he's only you only see his arm hanging out the window we studied this in high school i remember it quite vividly <laughs> um and uh it's about this duel that happens between this guy and his little car and the truck and the whole thing happens within the cars and it's exactly the same as um the new mad max film mm. all this stuff goes down but actually they're just in a truck the entire time pretty much mm. that's where the whole thing happens mm. um would you fly or have x-ray vision? <laughs> I would run really fast. Run really fast. That's the that's your I love that power. question. 
when when I do icebreakers with some of my students in uh, at Melbourne Uni, when I teach various courses there, mm. one of the sort of the things I do is what ask is what superpower you would have. But um, what's the most common? Flying. Yeah, flying. Sometimes invisibility. Um, Erica has a great answer. She said she would be a, a, a polyglot. She'd speak every language on the in the world. Wow. And understand all of its you know nuances and its mm. richness which i think is an amazing that'd be an amazing thing that's an achievable superpower as well well like how many lang- there must be hundreds of languages not really achievable wow i don't know you, you know, work really hard <laughs> you can get there <laughs> but running really fast um she gets weird when you run really fast like i'm talking really really fast like the flash fast i'm not talking about like just a couple hundred kilometers an hour you saying bolt yeah, not a, I want to be able to beat the same bolt without even having to like get out of bed. Mm. Um, but, you know, those dudes, they can like vibrate through solid matter and um, the flash gets all kooky when he starts approaching the speed of light and all sorts of weird things start to happen like time travel and mm. all things go, think, you know, because the space-time continuum and everything. So that'd be totally it. Mm. What would yours be? Flying. Flying. Who doesn't want to fly? Yeah, flying is really attractive. Especially if you believe, uh, is it the second Superman film with Christopher Reeve where he flies so fast around the world's orbit backwards that he turns back time? That is so ridiculous when he saves Lois Lane from falling in that crack in the earth. Yeah. Yeah, just because the orbit... (laughs) It's like... That is... That's stretching the boundaries of uh, credibility. I think the logic is flawless. <laughs> yeah, you can't, and, you hey, can't and follow it. They told the story that they wanted to tell. There's this. Uh, have you ever read the online comic X- XKCD? Ah, uh, little bits and pieces. Michael yeah. Munro. He's read this. He's written this great book called um, What If. All these people can write. You can write in with like these bizarre what if questions, science questions to him on his on the website, and he compiled this into a single book. And one of them was, what happens? if the earth stopped rotating instantly but all the things on it like our atmosphere for instance which has been traveling around whatever speed it travels around it keeps on going and he then goes through and describes the cataclysmic um destruction (laughs) that would happen to our planet because um everything that was moving continues to have momentum but the planet is now no longer moving so it's like we've just been in a car that has braked from whatever speed the surface of the earth is going which is obviously pretty quick mm. um, to zero instantly, and like the the tsunamis that occur, and the sheer devastation, the wind friction of all that air stopping to move, the fires, and the basically everyone dies. Yeah, I'm just saying. I mean, everyone dies anyway, so. Yeah, I'm just saying the Superman film that could have worked a little bit of that, a little bit of that scientific <laughs> analysis into the the story writing, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, if gravity, which is revered, can just bypass scientific rationality i think 1970s christopher reeve superman can probably i mean the the, the guys from another planet that's true <laughs> let's not try and let's not nitpick let's not, the, let's, uh, not let's not limit the him. time travel okay look that's fine elements yeah. if you could go back 10 years or 15 years what piece of advice would you give yourself <laughs> i laugh because on my blog I have a series of articles that I write. I think I'm up to like 38, which are pieces of advice that I would give myself 15 mm. years ago. To do with what in particular? Anything. If you could just tell yourself one thing, one piece of advice like, 
um, don't take things too seriously or pursue a different career or don't do that year of pharmacy. That's just a waste of time. Um, I think it would be um, don't feel like you need to be liked so much. Mm. Is that something that you felt a lot in your teens and 20s? Yeah, like in high school, I was the kid who had no meat on him whatsoever. Um, like a massive head of curly black hair and glasses and freckles. Like Good Jewish boy. Yeah, good Jewish boy. And um, in a non-Jewish high school that uh, does not bode well for the... Um, for getting picked first for the footy team. Um, and so, you know, I think there was a maybe a bit of neediness that, it, that evolved as a result of that. I think when I got into university, I was able to totally um, rebuild myself from scratch. And I think that was one of the great things about going to university. And I don't regret the year of pharmacy. I think, you know, whichever journey you take to get to where you want to go, to it, when you realise that's where you want to be, is totally okay. Mm-hmm. And I have nothing wrong with taking years to get there. Um, I think there's an expectation that you head straight out of high school and straight into your vocational course, as we were talking about before, but you know, I, I don't think there's a rush. So I don't regret that at all, but I think that, um, you know, it's okay to be a badass sometimes. It's okay to, you know, not do what people want you to do. Mm-hmm. I think you can only really ever be true to what you believe and who you are and what makes you tick. I think the biggest pitfall that most people fall into is uh not being true to themselves in serving being liked or because they're afraid that they won't be loved or um so they lose themselves in that in that need to feel validated from external um external ways yeah i think your comment you think that people can only be true to themselves i think that the true comment is people should only be true to themselves mm. but plenty of people aren't and i think my comment about wanting to be liked it wasn't about Certainly wasn't about love because I always had plenty of that for my family. Mm-hmm. But I think it was about popularity, mm. being the cool kid. Um, and you know, now I'm totally the cool kid. Yeah, right? you know, I was gonna say. Yeah, I mean, you took your shoes off when right. you came into the room. I'm wearing Olympic yeah. socks. You are wearing Olympic socks. <laughs> no one can deny that. <laughs> no one. Well, you could. I just, I might have just made that story up. That's true. And this is also not a visual medium, so no one yeah. actually knows if you're even wearing socks. I could be wearing no socks. And have your toes painted red. Who says, to, who is to say I have feet? Boom. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's getting, let's move on. So if you could give your son, Oscar, one piece of advice, if you could time travel into the future. And you could time travel to a time when he was 18 and about to embark on his adult life. What would that one piece of advice be? Creativity is really important to me and to Erica as well. Um, And I'm... One of the... Let me answer that in in a slightly different way. One of the things I think about sometimes when I design is the way that um, as an architect, I have to envisage the, the future that, no, that does not yet exist. And that might be very simple in, you know, it might be quite a banal example where we ask clients, you know, how many kids do you plan on having? Currently you have one, you're asking us to design a house for you, but if you're gonna have three kids, we probably should design for that. Or it might be more, you know, um, philosophical, or philosophical or profound as well. And the way I think about it is I, 
I think every design exercise or every creative exercise when you're creating something new in the world is about drawing a line from here to there where there is the perfect existence where you want the world to go, the direction in which you want the world to go. And every creative intervention that you do should be on that line, pushing you in that direction. Even if it is the tiniest, teeniest step, it wants to go in that direction. Um, and so, um, and I think creativity is a big part of, of you know, self, my self-identity and what I think is valuable and important in the world. And I think that, um, I have no, I don't, I don't necessarily want Oscar to be an architect or anything like that. Um, I don't even necessarily think he should, he needs to be creative, a creative um, type of like in a creative industry. But I think being creative in whatever he does is the key thing. So you could be a creative, everyone knows what a creative accountant is, whether or not you want one of those or not is another thing. But you, <laughs> but scientists are some of the most creative people out there. You know, they're mm-hmm. out there charting new territories and I'm so impressed with scientists. I think if I wasn't, an architect and I didn't work at Pixar being a scientist of some kind doing research into the unknown would be amazing like you know guys plumbing the depths of space and astronauts and the depths of the oceans are so deeply immensely um, important to who we are um, and what we what we can do Um, I'd be just as excited about that as well Um, but in all things hold that sense of creativity that wonder um, and that desire to make things better. Mm. How important do you think it is to have uh, a sense of wonder about everything that you do? Yeah, critical. Because I think there's a lot in the world that can make you jaded. Um, there's a lot in architecture that can make you jaded. And as a business person as well, there's a lot in that that can make you jaded, you know. Um, there's... And one of the reasons I was really looking forward to this chat was to, and I think I said this to you on the phone when we first talked about it, was that um, a lot of the sorts of, lots of the discussions that I have with my um, peers or the presentations that I give to students or to whatever, looking at the, either the nuts and bolts of running an architecture practice or about design, but actually taking a step back and thinking about, you know, the joy of it is something that um, maybe I don't do enough. Mm. Um and one of the truths about running an architecture business or an architecture studio um, is that um, a massive chunk of the projects that we start never finish. Hmm. A surprisingly large number. Um, and I would say maybe 50% or more of the projects that we've been commissioned to do have died a horrible death at some point along the way. Maybe right. not a horrible death, but a death nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And we'll never see built form. And in some instances, that's a real like, heartbreaking experience. So um, keeping that sense of wonder about you and that passion for, um, uh, for creating the new is essential because without it, you just get bogged down in, in the things that don't go right. Mm. And that would suck. So what is your philosophy when it comes to architecture? I know you're really uh, passionate about environmental sustainability um, and I guess innovative design in terms of spaces and things like that what is your philosophy that's a hard question look i'm passionate about environment environmental sustainability but that's not it at all um that's like saying i'm passionate about buildings standing up every building should <laughs> bloody be environmentally sustainable every building should stand up of course you know um it's currently a you know a very hot topic um 
and we're interested and we try and push it on every project, but that's not the thing that drives us um, or drives me. Um, what is the philosophy for architecture? What's your philosophy? Well, yeah, sorry, what is my philosophy for architecture? Um, I know I'm really restless and we recently did a renovation excuse me, we did a renovation to one of our own projects. Um, the first house that we did. Uh, and so that was separated by about almost 10 years. And there was never any second thought in my mind that we would just go and replicate what we did 10 years ago. It was about uncovering the new. Um, so maybe that's it. Maybe it's about um, throwing um, myself headlong into doing things in a new way even if in some ways that's a really silly thing to do because there's plenty of efficiencies that can be gained from just repeating yourself over and over again and there are certainly some architects who i think are really wonderful who have made a whole life about um, just perfecting the one thing and doing that over and over and over again in various forms but essentially never straying from that course and i just get the sense that i may not i'm i don't think i'll know this for an, until 10 or for another 10, 20, I don't know. Like, as I said, architecture's a long game. We've been in practice for, officially for five years. That's nowhere near long enough. Been building for a bit longer than that, but that's nowhere near long enough to actually know myself, I don't think, as an architect. But I don't think I'm going to be that guy. I don't think I'm going to look back at my career and have seen a, like a narrowing of the focus down to one, one thing. I think that um, being more of a sponge and being really adaptable is probably more my bag, which is which is quite challenging to be. Um, and I know a lot of architects talk about how it's all about the, the clients and the people. Um, and I certainly know that the best projects are the ones with really engaged clients, but my greatest passion is the building. Um, that is the number one thing in the design process. Um, and, you know, I want clients to basically really like in a perfect world, I'd love patrons. Patrons mm. are, the, are the gold, not the gold mine, the, the holy grail of architecture. And most architects never get a patron where they basically say, we are here to allow you to express your creativity as, as personally and as wonderfully as you possibly can. Um, anyway, so it's the pursuit of the unknown. It's the, mm. uh, and restlessness for, um, I don't know if that is, I don't know if that's, is that an answer? Is that just like totally unintelligible? Well, let me ask you this. What is it about creating a home for someone, a place where they're going to live, where they're going to work, where they're going to raise a family? I remember talking to you about that. We had a, a common, there's, there's that common point in a film and the construction of a house where with a film where you've, you've written it, you've had your pre-production, you've shot it, You've got your editing and there's always one point where it drops in and it stops being a project and it starts becoming a real tangible uh, thing. <clears throat> it's usually, I think I discussed this in the very first episode, it's usually around the time the music comes in and it actually ties everything together. And I remember you telling me there's that moment when you're building a house where it goes from being a construction site to being someone's home or someone's office or something like that. So I guess what is it about that? What's your philosophy and your take on that that you feel that keeps the juice flowing and, the, and, and everything pumping? 
You were talking with um, Sam Johnson about uh, being part of something bigger than yourself. And I think one of the, the most amazing things about being an architect is the legacy you leave. And it's such a tangible legacy. You know, it's buildings. And we design buildings to last for decades, if not centuries. Um, and there's something giddying about that, leaving a mark as profound as a building on the land um, for a long, long time that will outlive me um, and certainly outlive the ideas that I had at the time of making that building. That's great. There's a, it's almost like a drug. Mm. Um, seeing, you know, we put on an average project, we might put a thousand hours into it, um, or almost a thousand hours before it even gets to site. And, you know, this is just, a, we're talking about a house split, split between a tiny little studio of three people. So imagine for much bigger projects that would just like just snowball. So um, you've spent so long visualizing it and so long seeing it entirely in your head. And by the time it gets on site, you've even started seeing, you know, the way the door handles are going to be and, and the way the windows are going to open and the, the exact way the bench top in your, in your kitchen bench is going to meet the cupboard faces. Like that, that's the sort of level of detail we're looking at. So to actually see that executed is, it's quite, there's a real um, honor in it as well, in having the opportunity, sometimes you can't, I can't believe it, that uh, like the kid in me, I think is a bit gleeful that, <laughs> yeah. you know, like we play a hard game, you know, we, we try and like think very hard about the, the socio-economic and the social, economic, and political structures that surround architecture. And I, I dedicate a lot of time to thinking about that as a architect and as a business um, person. Um, but at the end of the day, getting someone else giving us hundreds of thousands of dollars or more to go and put a, a building into the world is like bloody, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. Um, and it will be there forever and it will affect the way those people live or work or whatever they're doing in that building for every day and we're talking before about how a school affects you you know every mm. day in and out for year after year buildings do the same and a lot of i don't i think a lot of people in australia don't really understand that um and therefore don't value architecture which i think is a great pity mm. do you think sorry go on no yeah i was gonna say um so do you think the meaning of life is to make a difference and stamp your little moment of time to create that sort of legacy for a better future? It's not necessarily about stamping, but it's definitely about making a difference. It's a, it's about um, uh, reshaping the world in to your passions um, in a really uh, constructive way. I was reading an article in the paper yesterday um, about uh, people who live on almost no money and they sort of talking about you know they do a bit of farming they, they sort of couch surf or they basically don't have jobs and i just got into that article and i thought that is like the opposite of what it means to be an adult being an adult <laughs> means contributing yeah be it having children or like propagating a, the human species or making the world a better place that is our obligation as human beings and people who don't do that uh, i think are either selfish or misguided 
Um, and there, there are as many different ways to do that as there are people on the planet. So that's about 7 billion different ways. That's a lot of ways. It's <laughs> a lot of ways. So be it creating something um, like a building and leaving that as a legacy, that's one thing. Writing a story that people will read for 100 years or maybe just two years is part of that. Um, you know, directing a film, writing a piece of music, all of those, anything creative, I think, falls into that character. Uncovering new knowledge. Um, yeah, that is the meaning of life. Mm. What do you think it takes to raise children into that uh, that way of believing and that way of living? I would not have a clue. <laughs> what do you think it takes to be... Uh, what What do you regard as, as a good parent? Oh, my God. I can tell you this, that you know, architecture might be a slow game and it might take a long time to get better at it. But actually, with children, you can never get better at it because the ground shifts on you so rapidly unless you have a child every 10 years or every few years for the rest of your life and therefore by the time you're at the you know 20 years from now you're an experienced parent who've had babies every year for the last 20 years you're never going to get better at baby like managing a baby because as soon as you get the hang of it your baby stops being a baby and turns into a toddler and then you have to deal with the fact that they're a toddler and it keeps on shifting so you know um having a child is a is the biggest experiment of all and for most people, because they don't have lots and lots of children, um, you you never get to perfect it. Mm. Um, I think the I think those moments are probably the key. It's not about some big gesture about like ramming home some big message into your child that never wavers that prepares them for the world. It's about uh, you know. I, occasionally read parenting articles about the most important thing you can do with your daughter is be there for her um, or, or listen to her or, or just respect her. And, you know, you get to the end of those sorts of the 20 things, the most important thing you can do for your children. And you go, am I doing those things? I, I don't really know. But really what it boils down to is just, you know, being around and, and caring and um, uh, not being a jerk. And one of the most amazing things about running our own architecture studio is that it currently is run out of home and hopefully we're going to move it out of the out of our spare bedroom soon and become a bit more professional. <laughs> um, but that means I get to be around all the time. So after this um, interview, I'm going to, after this chat, I'm going to go back to the studio and my son, Oscar, will probably want to come up and work with me. And that generally involves him watching YouTube videos on my lap on Eric on my wife's computer, what which he calls his computer, um, and the kid's three years old and he knows how to access YouTube and how to watch his Winnie the Pooh videos or, you know, he does love he does like like a bit of Katy Perry and, and that's mind blowing. When I was three, I just shat everywhere I think and, <laughs> and wanted to be Superman. Watching him swipe and there's something about like Apple have shaped the way personal computing and all the various mobile devices that we use in a way that everyone else are just pretenders and mm. like i'm a bit of an apple geek i guess but watching a three-year-old intuitively understand how to um like unlock an iphone which is something that they basically created the swiping and the way you tap on it and the way you access apps it's just mind-boggling. It's mm. like it's like they've they've been able to see into the head of a child, 
and understand how those things tick. It's amazing. Well, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, war veterans who are hundred years old who've lived through World War One, World War Two. Um, you know, some of the greatest inventions ever known to man, who can't operate an iPhone, and yet there's a child of three with no life experience and no understanding of the world who can just make it work. That's right. Well, I'm, I'm sure that says speaks something about intuition mm. that um, as you get older and older, you lock yourself more and more into the way you see the world, and which also talks back to the idea of retaining a sense of wonder, um, which is really hard to do when you're sort of, you know, you're sitting around tables talking about things like mortgages and finances and bloody, you know, unblocking the drain pipes again and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, intuition gets smothered, but you get in early and they've obviously, I don't know, geniuses. Mm. <laughs> It feels like a really, uh, actually feels like a really natural place to end the, the podcast. I did have more questions and as anyone who would listen to this show would know, I always have more questions, but that was a really, I don't know, that seems like a really nice way to sort of wrap things up because I, I, I agree. I think it is really important and I think a big uh, thing that I've learned here with you is, is really the importance of maintaining that childlike wonder and inspiring your own creativity and intuition. Yeah, I think that's really great. But there is one question that I have to ask you that I ask every guest, and that is, what makes you silly? <laughs> what makes me silly? It can be, what is it about you that is silly? Or what is something that makes you go silly? Or <sighs> I fear that I'm pro- my answer, the answer that comes first and foremost to mind seems like massively cliched, and, uh, which is my children. Um, I see no reason why children wouldn't make a person absolutely batshit silly. Yeah, like because of all this, this talk about the long play and thinking for the future that I do in my work, um, being uh, a parent is the exact opposite of that. Actually, and to answer your question before about what makes a good parent, I think that's a better way of articulating it. To be in the moment with your child at your child's level is really hard and sometimes really fucking boring because children are really repetitive people. (laughs) And I'm not sure if you've noticed, but often their skill sets are limited. Um, So hanging out with a six-month-old or a three-year-old involves doing the same thing over and over and over again. But if you can let go of that and just uh, stick within the moment, um, then uh, that's when I find that I can, you know, I can dance in the middle of the street because that's what Oscar's doing. And he has a a particular unbridled passion for jumping in puddles. (laughs) And so after rain, we generally both put out on our Wellingtons. He also gets waterproof pants and a raincoat because otherwise he just gets saturated. And we go and find the nearest puddle, which is often in the middle of the street. And I stand blocking traffic while he stands there jumping in the puddle. What are you going to do? Like that's, that's the silliest I get. It's often still raining. We're standing there. It's the most ridiculous thing to be doing. And that's what we're doing. Jumping in puddles. And how does that make you feel? Pretty silly. (laughs) Cool. Thanks for this, man. Really appreciate it.
Awesome. Can we go get lunch? Sure. Actually, I'm going to go and have a, uh, a sensory deprivation float, which I've been doing lately. Okay. Before or after lunch? Before. Okay. All right. Thanks, man. Well, much thanks to Warwick for coming in uh, and apologies for the state of, um, of uh, Nick's pants. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Warwick and his, uh, and his wife and their architecture practice, head on over to mahaleyslocum.com.au, which is M-I-H-A-L-Y-S-L-O-C-O-M-B-E.com.au. Or you can find uh, Warwick uh, has his own blog called Penfilo Castaldi, which is P-A-N-F-I-L-O-C-A-S-T-A-L-D-I. Coming up next, friends, it's the Lost episode, the one that I promised you a couple of weeks ago. You may know this man from House Husbands, you may know him from Play School, you may know him from Secret River most recently. Coming up next, Reese Muldoon. Bye-bye now.